Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we discuss internationalism and historical materialism, why these offer a better understanding of the world than identitarianism, and how they offer us a better way forward. Welcome back to fucking cancelled. Welcome back to fucking cancelled. So I'm excited about today's episode. Yeah. This is an episode that Jay and I have been talking about for quite some time. Um, sure. And so I think it's finally time for us to dive in. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so to give a little background about where we're coming from in relationship to this topic, basically, like, Jay and I, obviously, we hang out all the time. We're constantly talking about everything, and we know each other really well. And so in discussing, you know, our lives, we have noticed a very distinct difference in, <laughs> <laughs> in our childhoods and the ways that we kind of came to understand the world. And so, like, for me... I grew up in a really small town, rural context in Ontario. Um, It was a majority white school that I went to. It was like the same 30 kids, like for the whole eight years of elementary school, you know, very small town, extremely Christian um, and very like isolated from different ways of being, different cultures, different understandings of the world. And then on top of that, like I got a basic... um, you know, Ontario public school education, which taught me basically nothing about the world. Like it taught me nothing about history or even like other contexts internationally. I knew very little about that. And I was extremely ignorant and sheltered. And I moved to Toronto when I was 16 and moving to Toronto, which is like basically a 45 minute drive from where I grew up, was like a massive culture shock to me because Toronto is like a very, very multicultural city. And so suddenly I was surrounded by all of these people who had all of these cultures um, and all of these ways of being that I knew literally nothing about. Mm. um, And I was constantly confronted with my ignorance. So that is my experience. And then Jay has had a really different experience. Yeah. And like, you know, not to dox myself, um, (laughs) but... Yeah, I I grew up in a bunch of different countries as a kid um, because of my parents' work, um, and I spent much of my childhood in Asia. Um, And yeah, I, you know, I was surrounded by different languages. I was like a, I was a member of a very small minority, um, Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, you know, I I was forced, um, in a good way, I would say, you know to confront the fact from from a very young age that the world is not North America. Yeah. Um, the world is extremely big and it's full of people and all of those people are humans just like me um, who inhabit, you know, uh, places that have history mm-hmm. in the same way that um, the people I come from have history. Yeah. And I think that that perspective is one that a lot of people in North America, um, you know, have to some degree but like don't have in a kind of like embodied way if I could put it that way yeah I totally agree with you because it's like a type of ignorance that is so normalized that people don't even really think of it as ignorance or they're like not aware of that 
And, like, just, like, one concrete example to, like, kind of show what we mean is that, like, and I think you pointed this out to me and I was, like, shook by it because basically, you know, if we are, if we think about, like, the Middle Ages, for example, Mm. at least for me in the context that I come from, I reflexively think of Europe. Right. Because I was only ever, like, when I was taught history, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was basically taught European history. And so, like, the concept of the Middle Ages, like, the information that's, like, readily available to me about the Middle Ages is European, what was going on in Europe in the Middle Ages. Yeah, it's knights on horses. And so, like, I think a lot of people who grew up in North America, in the North American school system, will have a similar sort of reflexive way of thinking about history that completely cuts out like the richness of what history actually is in an international context. Totally. I think for, for most people in North America, um, including quite well-educated people, they have like a rough grasp on the chronology of history. And it goes something like in the beginning, there was probably some biblical shit happening in Egypt. Then there was Greek city States. Then there was Romans. Um, then there was basically the middle ages, um, Renaissance, like the age of discovery, um, and then there was like the two world wars and now there's now. Right. Um, and there must've been some stuff going on in India cause the Buddha was from there. Right. Um, Africa, probably jungles. Um, there was some sort of like half formed civilizations in like Mesoamerica maybe. And then there was China and China was blocked off for some reason on the other side of the world. Not sure why possibly mountains. <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of ignorance in the way that a lot of people see the world and, I think part of what we want to do with this episode is kind of like, in a way, invite that ignorance in mm. as a way of saying it. Sure. I yeah. um, Because it's not weird that people think that way. Yeah. Because like that is how history is taught. Yeah. Very much so. For a very long time, it's been that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we also are, as North Americans, we are inhabitants of the the region that currently thinks of itself as the center of the universe yeah you know totally and um yeah i jokingly talk about my strategical ditziness um which is just that like you know i think sometimes you have okay on the one hand you have you know this very pervasive ignorance that a lot of people have about you know the world internationally and also history internationally um but they don't necessarily know they're ignorant or if they are, if they do become aware that they're ignorant, they might feel like ashamed or embarrassed of the fact that they're ignorant. And then on the other hand, you have sort of like um, people who are very well versed in this, who are like, um, you know, history nerds or like they just know a lot about history is a lot of information. Mm -hmm. It's overwhelming how much information it is. Right. And so I think that people who are ignorant might feel really like sort of, they don't know where to start. They feel overwhelmed by it and they feel embarrassed of their ignorance And so they don't know how to like find out. And then unfortunately, people who talk about history and talk about the world can sometimes do so in a way like any kind of specialized knowledge where it's kind of opaque or like it's not clear and people don't know how to ask questions or like find out what they what the fuck they actually mean or like put that into a larger context. Like literally Jay and I have this kind of conversation all the time where Jay will be talking about like some country in the world like, you know at some point in history and I'd like try to follow along <laughs> and literally like JS had to point out to me on the map, like where things are, right? you know, because like my world map in my head was basically non-existent. Like I could not figure out and it's still not nowhere near as good as Jay's, but like I could not fucking, I didn't really know, for example, like what the shape of China was. 
Right. You know? And so now I do. I have, like, a mental image in my mind of China. Whereas, like, before, like, I really didn't, even though it's not like I had never seen a globe. But when you look at maps, but your lens is has always taught you to see the world and to see history through a perspective that Europe and North America are the main characters. Mm-hmm. And the rest are like whatever they say, like they're be dragons. Yeah. Like then it's harder to actually focus and pay attention to other countries and like their specifics and their context, you know? And that yeah, can there's actually, nothing to grasp onto you really. Yeah. And so yeah. that when you look at the map, you're seeing a bunch of shapes, but those shapes don't mean anything to you because you don't have any fucking concrete information about those places. And so, yeah, I just want to you know, invite people who might be ignorant, because of course there's probably people listening to this who are like, um, I obviously know what the shape of China is, what the fuck. And there's other people who probably are super fucking ignorant because they of the way that they were educated, you know? And if that's the case, I just want to invite people to listen in a way that is not coming from this like sort of embarrassment about ignorance because it leads to it doesn't lead to an engaged way of relating to information. Yeah, for sure. I mean people are not taught this stuff. So like I said, it's not surprising that most people's understanding of both history and geography, like human geography, um, and like what you could call like ethnography, like the the understanding of like peoples, mm-hmm. um, is very very limited. You know? Yeah. Um. So it's it's not weird that that people wouldn't have like a a detailed grasp of it. And I have, I think, a more detailed grasp of it than most people for a couple reasons. Mm-hmm. Like one is my childhood that that we mentioned earlier, which just kind of like gave me like a bit of a head start in that direction. Two is that I have like an educational background in anthropology mm-hmm. and three is that I'm interested in it, like in a, a very obsessive way. In a nerdy way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I know, I know a lot about it, um, but it's for particular reasons. Yeah. You know? And so Jay and I have had these conversations all the time, you know, where, um, you know, Jay's always thinking about history is always telling me stories about like various things that were going on in history all over the world. And, we've had a lot of conversations about internationalism and historical materialism and how they offer a different way of thinking about the world than what is put forth by identitarianism and the, the major ways of thinking about um, power and history that come out of a largely North American um, identitarian social justice culture or what we call on the podcast the nexus so today we're just going to get into that a little bit and the way that this is going to go down is like I'm basically going to be interviewing Jay but I'll also kind of pop in and talk about it a bit as well Um, and we're just going to explore some of these questions and I guess the other thing we kind of wanted to say in the beginning is that while what we're talking about in the way that we're going to be talking about it has some overlap with like Marx and like a Marxist way of thinking about it It's not like explicitly a Marxist way of thinking about it. Um, And we're not necessarily saying that like this is the correct right or only way to think about these topics. We're just diving into our understanding of them. Yeah. And also we're encouraging people to take up these ways of thinking and these ideas as something that they too can think about, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so because I think people feel sort of, I don't know, like it's, I have felt that, like, if I don't fully understand all of this stuff, then I can't engage with it. Right. And I think that that is such a loss for people, especially with identitarianism totally running the fucking show in terms of giving us frameworks for thinking about things. Mm. And this offers us very rich possibilities for thinking about things. So we're basically offering it as, like, a beginning or a way in to thinking about these ideas. Totally. Okay. So let's get into it. Let's. So first of all, for the listeners, 
what is internationalism? And how, does, how is this different from a Eurocentric or North American-centric way of viewing the world? Sure, sure. Yeah, in, internationalism is a term that um, has often been used in like a socialist context. Um, mm. And it's basically this idea that um, we, and it's old to the term, right? It's this idea that we should be moving away from a model that sees the world as sort of like a series of other places to be conquered and pillaged, mm. um, to, or to, you know, to be like, you know, thinking strategically in terms of like, we can be allies with these people so that we can like use like right. our combined might to take over these people, whatever, moving away from that model and being like, we are all in this together mm-hmm. on the whole planet. Um, and if that's the case, then our main, um, our main, like, orientation towards other people's other countries should be one of solidarity so we should be trying to lift everybody up as much as possible um we should be sending like aid when necessary receiving aid when necessary right and um something that flows from that is that we should be trying to move away from models that really like privilege one area of the globe at the expense of everybody else Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. um and that would mean perhaps that like we should be learning not just like latin Right. In school, but maybe we should learn Chinese or something like that. Right. You know what I mean? And so 100 years ago, this is what people were thinking about, right? Um, and this obviously has uh, lots of ramifications for today's world, too. Um, and today's world is much more, like, integrated and globalized than it was 100 years ago. Well, in in many ways. Um, my caveat is that 100 years ago, like, the, the main the gigantic like empires still had not been like dismantled so that a lot of the world was integrated into like the British empire, for example, but it wasn't really like globalized the way that it is now. Um, But yeah, so today things are much more globalized and also the balance of power has shifted a lot so that it's not, it wouldn't be weird for someone to learn Chinese now. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is still very much the case that like um, people in um, what you might call the global North or some people call the West, um, these the sort of like core capitalist countries uh, really do tend to think of themselves and the history of like their forebears mm-hmm. um, as being the only like real history. You yeah. Know? Um, and so I think, yeah, internationalism means moving away from that. Um, and Eurocentrism is obviously like deeply connected slash like is almost the same like thing where Eurocentrism is this this. Yeah, it's just like a worldview that like completely privileges Europe and Europe's like settler colonies as the main characters, as you put it, the main drivers of history, um, the place where like real things have happened in history, um, the the most important places. And like, so there, there's like a very like racist um, undertone to all this, right? Um, which it, you were going to say something? Well, can I just ask a clarifying question? Because you said it's the same, it's basically the same thing as what? Oh, it's the same thing as sort of the opposite of internationalism. Okay. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah, um, And, yeah, so there's, like, a racist understanding of Eurocentrism or, like, a racist version of Eurocentrism, which is, you know, along the lines that, like, since Europeans slash, like, white people are the most important and superior people, it only makes sense to look at Europe as, like, the most important. Right, like a sort of intentionally racist way of looking at history because it's, like, we're privileging European history because it's somehow better. Yeah, it's better, it's more important, it's more sophisticated, it's the only, like, real driver, right? Yeah. And then there is a, what you could call, like, unintentionally Eurocentric, um, and what I would argue is unintentionally racist Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, perspective that 
also privileges Europe and Europeans immensely as the main characters of history, but just is like, and they're bad, you know? Um, so right, it's like right, where, right. where a racist might be like Europe is like Europe and Europeans um, like invented modernity. You know, they invented like everything good in the world. Um, all the most important developments were t- like took place in Europe and were done by Europeans because they're white and white people are better. Um, there is like a, a strain of anti-racist racism, um, which says that like basically all the same thing, like all the most important sort of like elements of history took place in Europe and were done by Europeans, but they were bad. Right. Um, yeah. Totally. And I also think that there's like a third thing, which is also, I think, unintentionally racist, but it's not either saying that Europeans are like European history is either inherently better or inherently worse, but it's just simply the only one that people know. Yes. And yes. so like that, that profound ignorance that a lot of people have in North America, um, like holds up this Eurocentrism and North American centrism mm-hmm. because it's just simply ignorance. Yeah, and I should clarify that when I say that that's racist, I don't mean that it's racist because it is like mean towards white people. I mean that it's racist in the sense that it only talks about white people and it doesn't treat other groups of people in the world as though they are as real, as important, um, as capable of driving historical change as white people are. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get more into this further on in other questions. But yeah, I really like the main character model as a way of thinking about it, you know, Um, because I I think that basically like what this comes down to is that people in North America, especially people in the United States of America, but I would say North America broadly, Mm -hmm. um, really have been taught to think of themselves as the main characters of the world. Yes. Um, And in that, you know, main characters don't need to know that much about supporting characters (laughs) you know what i mean like they don't need to know about what's going on in the rest of the world because it's not what's really important like the main action is what's happening in the story of you know the united states of america or in the story of europe and Mm -hmm. so like i really think that when you step out of that framework and you see that there are like many many stories going on in the world and that each each person, obviously, in terms of like individual people, but also each culture, each country and each culture has its own main characterness where they are telling their own story from which they are the center, right? And yeah. from that perspective, the story of Europe and the story of North America, you know, while it may have like some influence on, on this story, is the outside story. Mm-hmm. Like the story is the story coming from within. You know, if that makes sense. So that's how I think about it, because I really think that like this idea that like, you know, the United States of America is the main character in the world is like very pervasive. Yeah. Okay. So basically, um, let's talk about historical materialism. Um, what is historical materialism and how does this differ from essentialism or identitarianism? Sure. So historical materialism is a view of history that was basically developed by Karl Marx Mm -hmm. um, and has since, you know, it was like a revolutionary change in in thinking about history. And it has since like been taken up by lots of people who are not necessarily Marxists. And it's made like a gigantic influence on the study of history as a discipline. Right. Um, But I think one good way to start talking about historical materialism is to discuss the other views of history that it is not, if that makes sense. Um, And 
I think the major one is this kind of like, there's like great man view of history. Okay. Which is the idea that like historical change is mainly driven by like individual like princes and and, like rulers and stuff who make a decision. And then that um, changes the way that everything goes. Right. Right. So that's for a very long time. That's how people thought about history or they thought about history in terms of um, maybe like God or God's intervening in human affairs for a particular purpose Um, or maybe for random purposes, but like, but that like there was some outside force that was kind of like acting on humans and therefore like driving things along. One of the really important things that Marx figured out was that you can look at history as like a series of changes in um, the way that human beings work and by work I mean labor and so like Marx was like um, and this is the materialism part Marx was like human beings have to work in order to survive that is like this natural condition that is like imposed on human beings um, regardless of anything else that you care about or whatever like if there isn't somebody working to make food and like the tools and clothes that we need to survive there is no human society. So human society is based on a fundamental way in a fundamental way on labor. Right. And so the things that then, um, flow from that are first of all, that humans need to live in societies, um, because you can't do it alone. Uh Um, and secondly, that the character of that society is always going to be determined in some kind of a way by the way that people are working. Right. How, like, the kinds of tools that they have access to, the technologies that they have access to, right. the understandings that they have access to about the work that they're doing. So that is going to determine in a, in a really big way what the society looks like. And then, um, and that's what he called the, uh, it's like the, the forces of production, okay? And then there's the relations of production. Okay. Which are, and I know this is very, it's kind of like technical and Marxist-y, but it's, it's, it's relevant. The relations of production are the ways um, in which humans organize who does the work for whom. Right, okay. Um, And so, you know, a slave society has one type of, like, relations of production, right? right? And then capitalism has another, right? Right. Um, And so those two things together are, like, that's production. That's how, like, work happens in a society. And society is very much going to look like um, a, a result of those things, right? And so if those things change for some reason... If there is a technological innovation, right. if there is, um, you know, people coming in from a different place that have like a different way of um, making a living that is, you know, more efficient at producing calories or whatever, then there is going to be a shift in that society, right? Right. That shift might be imposed from outside, or it might be the result of a struggle within that society. Right. Different factions. Right. Different classes. Right. Right. And Marx was very big on the idea that all of history can be explained as a struggle of classes. Right. One against the other. I think it's potentially a bit more complex than that. Um, but it really is like the, the, the fact is that like there are factions within societies that are sort of like associated with different kinds of relations of production or like what they want the relations of production to be or what kinds of technology they have access to. And like the, the end result of that struggle ends up influencing the way that that society is going to look. And so historical materialism is basically being like, history works out the way that it does 
because of these very fundamental questions of how things are produced and who does the producing, not because of um, important guys who think important things. Right. Or gods intervening. Or gods intervening. Or, or. Um, and this is where we get into essentialism. Right. Because um, at a certain point, particularly in European history, like people started to think of groups of people as being as belonging to something called races. Right. And in European history, um, there was, you know, there was like a section of the European elite who comes up with this idea of races. And then it starts to be quite fashionable to believe that race is the driver of history. Right. And we're going to get into that in more detail in a further question. So I don't want you to totally unpack it now. But in terms of just, you know, helping listeners to think about historical materialism versus essentialism or identitarianism Mm -hmm. like we have an entire episode on identitarianism so if you haven't listened to that like please go back and listen to it because I feel like that will give you a 101 of what we mean when we say that but basically um you will often hear in you know social justice culture when people are trying to make sense of power Mm -hmm. very often they will refer to identity Mm-hmm. as the framework for understanding power and for understanding like why the world is the way that it is. Mm-hmm. It will be talking about identity groups and how identity groups do this or identity groups do that. And identity, some identity groups have these values, right? Especially along the lines of race, we have this idea that different, quote, races have different values sort of inherently or essentially, which comes out of the history that you're talking about, but now has been taken up by social justice culture. And we'll talk about it more in more detail later. But um, very rarely in the discussion of power or why the world is the way that it is, will you hear people in social justice culture talking about any of what you just said about um, like how work is organized what is the relationship around labor what are the technologies of labor Mm -hmm. these are extremely like i have you know it's very embarrassing to say but like two degrees two university degrees in like humanity social justice kind of stuff um as well as like a very long time spent inside social justice culture and i like almost never heard anything related to what you were just talking about yeah And so that's why basically we're doing this episode because we want people to put these tools in their toolbox for being able to think about power and history. It's funny because like these like right-wing conservatives think that like Marxists run the academy and I'm like, there's no fucking Marxists in the academy. There's no Marx in the academy, guys. (laughs) Like literally, I did not read any Marx in my entire two degrees, which is insane. Yeah. It's liberals from top to bottom. Yeah. So, okay. Um... How do internationalism and historical materialism together offer us a better way of understanding the world than identitarianism? Yeah, man. Well, it offers us a realistic way of understanding the world, you know, because like, here's the thing. If you believe that history is mostly the result of like identity struggle rather than like material struggle between like factions and classes and stuff or like uh, shifts in the means of production, then um you will start to believe things that are just like not that don't accurately reflect the world you know and i think that one example of this and it's like a it's kind of a long-winded one and it gets into questions that again i think we're going to get into more later but this is what the article that clementine referred to earlier that i'm writing currently is about the idea like people have this idea that like whiteness or white people um are sort of like responsible for climate collapse right because they're responsible for capitalism and like extractive logics and stuff like that 
And basically I'm like, you have this backwards. Mm -hmm. And because you have this backwards, you aren't able to get to the actual um, reasons behind these very catastrophic changes, right? And then it also impacts, like if you don't understand the cause of something, it impacts the way that you're going to think about the solutions to something. Because if you misunderstand the cause of something, then you're going to come up with solutions that are addressing something that is not actually the cause. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so, yeah, we're going to talk about this in a bit, but, like, I'm basically, like, um, white people didn't invent colonial capitalism. Colonial capitalism invented white people. Yeah. Um, Whiteness is, in some ways, like, an ideological technology for organizing people. And, like, race ideology is a technology for organizing people. And it flowed out of... um, other technologies that were being developed during a certain historical period in like one corner of Eurasia. Right. You know? And, um, and yeah, so if you, if you go through life thinking that, um, there really is such a thing as white people, you know, Uh um, then you would believe that maybe like the thing that you have to do is, I don't know, get rid of white people or get white people to stop, um, um, expressing their essential whiteness uh-huh. or something like that. But that isn't what is going to change the material conditions of our society. And furthermore, um, it might lead you to believe that like, yeah, okay, so like, for example, let's say, just like hypothetically speaking, and, and just to make the point, um, let's say we exterminated like all white people tomorrow, right? Um, the way that society is set up all around the world right now on the entire planet, um, is based on industrial capitalism. Right. There is, it is extremely unlikely that, well, I mean, actually, okay, if we did like exterminate a billion people, it would be like such a crazy like thing that, um, it would definitely like cause a huge upheaval. But the point is that like, let's say, let's say like all white people were sort of like stripped of all their wealth and assets, let's say, you know, um, capitalism would continue because the, 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 the basis of, um, the, the way that we run our, our economy is not, White people, the basis of the way we run our economy is capitalism. Yeah. And I mean, more realistically, you know, because your hypothetical is very outlandish. Yeah. But more realistically in the, in what, you know, social justice culture is suggesting as a solution is that they just want white people to be very sorry and very like deferential and very like self-reflective. So like if, if we were able to convince all white people of this way of thinking that they should be very suspicious of their internal sort of impulses because they are coming out of whiteness, which is inherently oppressive, you know, if we were able to get all white people to do that, it wouldn't change the existence of capitalism. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. Um, and, and also it's like, you know, getting like individual white people to be sorry about capitalism, like can't change capitalism because a random individual white person has exactly as much power to change like the course of human history as like the most oppressed lithium miner in the Congo. Right. Which is none. So one thing I want to say before we move on, because I think maybe for some listeners, the way that we're talking about this stuff might be a bit shocking because it is a very different way of discussing race than what has become the hegemonic way of discussing race within social justice culture or what we call the nexus. Um, and also just sort of like liberal society at large, would Mm. you say? Yes. And so if you are listening to this and you're like, what are they talking about? You know, um, there is a whole body of knowledge on the topic of the idea that race is a social construction that has been like invented for a specific reason. Mm -hmm. Right. And we interviewed Adolf Reed on this podcast a while back, um, 
And I really recommend people look into his work as a good jumping off point for thinking about these ideas. But one of the things that Adolf Reed says is he's like, the definition, the definition of racism is the belief that race is real. Yeah. Um, and like acting on it. Yeah. And actually like, like, like acting in the world as if race is like a real thing instead mm-hmm. of something that was invented as a way of dividing and defining people for specific purposes. Right. And so like, um, I think for a lot of people that is a totally alien way of thinking about what race and racism are. So, um, Definitely go check out some Adolf Reed if you're like totally shook by what we're saying. Yeah. And the Field Sisters. Yeah. The race, book Racecraft, Racecraft is like really important. Yeah. Okay. So um, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, talk to me about the base and the superstructure. <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? <sighs> yeah. Okay. So basically as... Okay. The base is the relations of production, more or less. Is how, first as, of all, these are Marxist terms. Is how a Marxist would put it, yeah. And so a way that you can think about this is, let's let's maybe let's take some examples. Um, like, a society that is based on, let's say, like, more or less, like, subsistence farming. Um, so there's a bunch of peasants who just farm, like, enough uh, grain to feed themselves. And then there's, like, a little bit of extra. That extra is taken by another class of aristocrats, nobles, right? Um, So that tends to be armed guys on horses who come around and they take the grain from the non-armed, non-horse-having people. Right. (laughs) And that's feudalism, right? And that was the basis, that was the economic basis of uh, a large part of the world for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, If that is the way that the world works, then the base of that society is... Um, the sort of like combo of the technologies that people use to farm grain um, and the uh, ways that um, um, that grain is then kind of distributed. So I get what you're saying. So it's what were the two things you said before? You talked about the relations of production. And the forces of production. And the forces of production. So in a certain way, the base is those two things. More or less. The base is how are the material needs of humans like what we need to survive how is that being produced Mm -hmm. and who's producing it Mm -hmm. and how is like the power structure around that organized yeah pretty much so that's the base pretty much yeah um so that's the base and then you have the superstructure and superstructure is just a fancy word for like the stuff that is on top you know right um like the superstructure of a building is sort of like the stuff like on the outside whatever um and so it's like the foundations and then like the rest you know right and so the superstructure sort of like sits on top of the base, right? right. It's all this stuff that grows up out of it. Um, and in the case of a feudal society, the superstructure is like, it's like the ideology, the institutions, the um, the religion, like the, the ways that people think, you know? The culture. The culture. Um, so all of this can be thought of as the superstructure. Now, what the superstructure looks like primarily is very much dependent on what the base looks like. Right. And so in a feudal society, the institutions are all going to support the base. They're going to say, this way of organizing society is the best way of organizing society. Right. Um, Anything that deviates from this is dangerous, bad, rebellious, heretical. Right? Mm -hmm. The ideologies that people are are inculcated with are also going to support that base. Mm -hmm. Right? And the base basically selects for a superstructure that supports it. Right. Right. And it's not that like 
these are these sort of like forces that exist like independent from humans. This is all happening inside the minds of humans, yeah. you know, and through their actions, and through their actions, and through the actions of classes. Yeah, right? and so it's like if there is a base, like an economic base that produces a class that has way more power than another class, then the ideology that's going to dominate in that society is the ideology of that dominant class because they dominate. They rule everyone. They control the institutions. They control how wealth is moved around. They control who gets an education. They control like what language is spoken. They control um, who gets to go to school. Like all this, all this stuff is going to be controlled by the um, dominant class. And so the ideology of the dominant class is going to be the dominant ideology in the superstructure. Right. And so, like, right now, under capitalism, um, our base is capitalism. Mm -hmm. And also our base is, like, a specific kind of, like... Yeah. Like, late-stage global capitalism. Yeah. Um, And so this is producing, I think, what Mark Fisher calls capitalist realism could maybe be our superstructure. It's definitely part of the superstructure, absolutely. Because we have reached this, like, yeah, this, like, very alienated way of existing in the world... Um, that that sees capitalism as like basically inevitable, yes. um, and that is flowing out of the reality that capitalism is structuring everything that we do, the way that we think, the way that we relate to each other, etc. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think um, you know this is something that Adolf Reed and like a couple of other of these like um, scholars in like the Black Marxist tradition have pointed out that. Um, in the early iterations of capitalism, the the way that capitalism worked, like the base um, of those societies, found it like extremely useful to have this ideology of right. of white supremacy. Right. Um, it was useful in a bunch of different reasons that we could get into, but the point is that it was it was very helpful for the ruling class to have that going on. Now, um, the way that capitalism is set up and the way that the base is set up it's not particularly useful to have like overt white supremacy anymore which is why there is no country in the world that has like overt white supremacy as like its important ideology and instead um various forms of like either like not racism or anti-racism are much more dominant um and that's because like capitalism is like completely globalized um and like there's uh you know the the major capitalist countries now are like very multicultural um, and it might be useful to have a sort of like, um, you know, somewhat more oppressed class of workers um, in those countries. And it is. Yeah. Um, But it's no longer necessary that they be like, first of all, like 100% racialized people. Right. Or that 100% of racialized people are in those are in that class. Right. Right. Yes. That makes sense. So, okay. I guess you kind of already answered this, but my next question was going to be how do technological advances shape the course of history? Is there anything else you want to say about that? Yes. This is where I'm going to start ranting about some historical examples. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into some historical examples. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's a couple that I want to talk about. Like one is the expansion of agriculture is like a great example of this. Now, this is something that happened in like ancient prehistory, like very long, 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 long time ago. Right. And it didn't only happen once. It happened in a number of different regions in the world. But we can, we can draw some lessons from the way that it went down in those regions, right? Um, and I think it's worth pointing out that, like, in, in ancient prehistory, things tended to happen much more slowly. Like, the expansions of the groups that I'm going to talk about happen over the course of, like, millennia. But they happen very um, steadily, right? Okay. Um, and then as history goes on, um, from that point, like, things changes start to get faster. Right. You know, and we can see this in our own age when like 
a technological innovation like the right. internet happened like what like yeah, it's a crazy. couple decades ago right and, and then it has everything. completely transformed like the way that everything works yeah um so technologies kind of like stack on top of each other right but yeah we can look at um the expansion of agriculture it's really interesting like in like in in the fertile crescent which is like today is like iraq and syria um uh, stretching down to egypt people developed agriculture like ten thousand years ago or something um and pretty rapidly it spread into the area that we call the middle east right early farmers from anatolia which is today's turkey spread into europe um so they had this like basic farming technology they had like all the tools they needed to farm they knew how to like clear land and they had like a a, a selection of crops that they could grow and the climate in europe was similar enough to the climate in like where they came from um, that they could move into Europe and, and what they had on their side, so to speak, was an enormous demographic advantage because growing crops allowed them to feed so many more people right. than um, foraging right. could, right? And so there were people living in Europe already. Right. This is like 9,000 years ago roundabout. There were people living in Europe already when this expansion from Anatolia started happening. They were called the, like, um, they were like in, indigenous, like European hunter-gatherers, okay. right? Um, and there were different groups of them, but they were basically, um, they were the descendants of people who had walked there, like from like right. way, way before, like up, like the last ice age, you know, yeah. there were people living there. Um, they were using stone tools and they, you know, lived in small groups and they just like hunted yeah. animals and, and foraged for food. Um, the farmers from Anatolia expanded into Europe um, and within a couple thousand years, which is pretty quick for like that time period. Yeah. Um, no one in Europe was like a hunter gatherer anymore outside the Arctic. Right. No one. And so like what had happened is that either the groups who were already there got, um, exterminated or pushed to the margins or they got incorporated into the new economic system. Yeah. And that new economic system and that new base of society, um, was basically so effective at like making more humans mm -hmm. that were part of it. Yeah. That, um, the other, the other mode of production, the previous one couldn't compete yeah. so to speak now we can also look at this a very similar thing that happened in africa mm -hmm. um the there was a group of people um who spoke languages that we call who spoke uh, the proto language of the language family that we now call the bantu language family um and they were from like somewhere in west africa and they developed farming independently um, they also probably had iron working when this happened mm -hmm. and the rest of the people that they were encountering around them didn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and they expanded out of their like homeland in West Africa pretty rapidly. And, um, they ended up, a group of them ended up settling around the great lakes, which is in sort of like more Eastern central Africa. Um, and from that base in the great lakes, they then expanded again in a massive expansion mm. because around the great lakes, they invented steel working. Mm. So they had steel. Okay. Um, so they had farming and steel. So again, huge demographic advantage, um, tools that other people around them didn't have. Yeah. One that, what ended up happening is that now, like almost all of Africa, south of the Sahara, speaks Bantu languages. Right. Um, and the indigenous people of Southern Africa, who uh, like are sometimes called the pygmies, mm -hmm. um, or like Central African foragers is, I guess, the more like correct term now. Um, and also the Khoisan in like even further Southern Africa now make up like less than 0.1% right. of the population of Africa. Like right. they're absolutely like completely overrun by Bantu speakers, right? Um, and again, like some of them were incorporated into Bantu, like the Bantu sort of like cultural complex mm -hmm. um, through intermarriage and slavery and stuff like that. 
Um, but many of them were just pushed to the margins completely, um, killed, you yeah. know, exterminated. And so what we have here is that the, there was this like change in a, a mode of production in one group that like gave that group such uh, an enormous advantage yeah. that they were able to expand like really dramatically, overrun the people around them. And, it, and then everyone around them was then incorporated into that system. Yeah. Right. Um, so this is one way in which the mode of production can dramatically change the course of history, right? And I also want to point something else out. I'm going to use another example for this. Um, I'm going to use the example of um, horseback riding. So horses, we're not sure exactly when they were domesticated. It might have happened in a couple of different times in a couple of different places. But currently, like almost all domesticated horses, or maybe all domesticated horses, I would have to look it up, are descended from one domestication event. Okay. Um, and they think that that happened somewhere in what's now like Eastern Ukraine um, on the central, sort of like the Eurasian steppe, mm-hmm. right? Steppe is like a prairie. Okay. Right. And what happened was at some point um, around probably like six, 5,000 years ago, um, there was a group of people who were pastoralists, which is like herders, they had like herds of animals, managed to domesticate horses. Um, and then they managed to figure out horseback riding and horseback riding gave them such an insane military advantage over their neighbors and also an economic advantage because it meant that they were able to range their herds way further than before. Right. Um, can you just explain what ranging a herd means? Because I found that confusing when you first said it to me. Ranging like, like a herd like moves around. So a herd of like cattle, cattle. Okay. So a bunch of cows, we got some cows, a whole bunch of cows or like could be goats or whatever. And so they, if you're, if you're herding them on foot, you have to like walk beside them. So what you're talking about is, let me just be clear because Mm -hmm. I find it sometimes confusing. I'm being strategically ditzy here. Please. Um, so you're talking about like a nomadic people who are yep. moving around yep. and they have a whole bunch of cows mm-hmm. and part of their base, part of their, the way that they meet their needs is that they, I guess, kill these cows to eat them. Yeah. And so, and maybe do dairy. And probably well. like early dairy. Yeah. And so they are, they need to keep these cows together mm-hmm. and keep them sort of herded together mm-hmm. so that they can then travel around with them. Yeah. And having horses allows them to do it like far more quickly and effectively moving around with these large number of cows. Yeah. Okay, great. And, and also, like, a, a very large, dense group of cows can, like, eat a lot of fucking prairie. You right, know? so you need to move them you away. You have to move them around. Okay, you know? because otherwise you have no more grass. Yeah, and if you can, if you are doing this, like, better than before because you have horses, and you can also move them further than before, again, because you have horses, and also wagons, which was, like, something else that they developed. Okay. Um, it means that, like, yeah, you just have, like, this huge advantage. Like, right. the people around you, like, are, are fucked pretty because soon, Because they right? basically, if they are also having cows, are the people around you also having cows in this scenario? Um, Some of them probably had cows. So yeah. if they have some cows, they're cows are pretty much either stay if they're either staying in the same place they can only have so many cows because there's only so much grass yep. or if they're trying to move with them like they don't they can't herd as many cows because they don't have horses so they can probably only have a smaller amount of cows yes exactly. okay, i understand exactly but so the the so you understand the the concept going on here but the thing i want to get to here is this kind of this this idea of like class conflict or like factional conflict within a society okay not just an example of a society like overrunning everyone around them. okay so like and this is theoretical, right? Like, we, we actually don't know how this happened. But I just want people to think about this theoretical example. Um, let's say that that society that developed the domestication of horses um, first used them only for meat and milk, okay. which actually is probably the case. Yeah. Right? Um, because, like, seeing a horse and being like, I'm going to ride that is, like, a very insane thing to do. <laughs> right. Um, 
So probably they first had horses, uh, they had herds of wild horses that they were using as like a meat source, right? Right. Um, in the same way that they were herding like cattle and stuff. Right. Um, and we could imagine, we, so this is the part that we don't know is true. We could imagine that maybe the, the, the ruling caste in that society, maybe they were like priests or like a sort of like proto noble or whatever, um, said there can be no horseback riding. Right. We love horses. They're a religious symbol for us. You're right. not allowed to ride them. It would be disrespectful. Right. Right. That situation could continue for quite a while. Right. You know, hundreds of years maybe because ideology can be very effective right. at making people do stuff. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, the thing is that potential for riding a horse exists. Right. It's, it's lurking. Right. In the background. And as soon as one group of people. Does it. Say, fuck the priests. Or maybe they're outlaws or whatever, you know? Maybe there are some people who got separated from the main group and, right. like, lost the sort of, like, religious ideas or something like that. As soon as one group is like, fuck it, I'm riding a horse, everyone else, fucked. They cannot compete. It's impossible. Right. Like, because the guys on horses are now your rulers. Right. Because they can just show up and fucking kill you. And they're riding on horses, so they're fast. They're extremely rapid. They can, like, move around way more quickly. They can send messages to each other very quickly. Yeah. Like, all sorts of things that, like, you just cannot do. You do not have the technology to do it. Also, like, if they're using these horses for herding purposes, as I've said, they can, like, within a couple generations, their their population is going to be much bigger than you. Right. So what happens is that within this society, th that that potential, that technological potential of horseback riding is lurking. And as soon as it gets taken up by one group, that group is the new ruling class. You know? Right. And there's been a revolution. Right. Um, and so that re revolution doesn't have to be like um, a group of sort of like oppressed people, like picking up pitchforks and like killing the priests or whatever. Um, although maybe it could look like that. Right. It's just like. But it's this like. Some harnessing a technology that gives them an inherent material power over the other group. That then transforms how society works. Right. It, with this, with something that is kind of, uh, it's an inevitability of sorts. Right. Which, which is like a weird and complicated thing to talk about you know right um and i think that in european history there has been a lot of taking up of this idea of inevitability um in a racist way right you know sort of this idea that all of history was leading up to like europe conquering the world or whatever you know right but this but, way of thinking about it is like attaching it to essentialism in this idea that the reason that europe was going to take over the world is because of some essential quality within europeans yes but what you're saying is something very very distinct mm -hmm. in that the inevitability is the technology not the identity because yes. you're giving examples of this exact same phenomenon playing out in all different ethnic contexts throughout history yes right so it's like you're talking about like the Bantu, mm -hmm. like, is there some kind of essence in the Bantu that makes them inherently either superior from one perspective or like more evil from another perspective? However, you want to define the the um, behavior of domination that yeah. that this technology leads to. Like, no, there's nothing inherent in the Bantu, just like there's nothing inherent in Europeans that makes them you know, quotes, more superior or more evil. Exactly. It's just that the technology that they have inherently gives them so much more power. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I think it's an interesting philosophical question to ask, consider, explore if, like, human sort of, like, intentionality and awareness could temper the inevitability of this drive, mm -hmm. you know, because it seems that throughout history, based on what you're saying – that like new technology has inherently led to domination um, because it gave you more power. But having more power 
I don't think necessarily has to lead to domination. Mm -hmm. If people had some kind of awareness to like temper that, you know, like would there be like, could there be a possibility of people being like, wow, we have the ability to dominate these people around us, but we're not going to. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like at the risk of being sort of like, the since I live in the present, the present is the most important time. Right. Um, I do think that like we are kind of like in the first era of history in which like something like that could even be conceivable. Right. Because for the first time we are in an era where it might be possible to have some sort of global consensus on things, um, you know, some sort of like way to, yeah, like hold back some of these processes, you know? I'm having a thought. Yeah. Which is also that we may be in a chapter of history in which to do this, to do what I just described, to to force like a intentional um, like stopping of the power that technologies bring, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. maybe the only thing that will save human life on the planet because of climate change. Because basically right now what we're having is that like we have these uh, capitalists right, who are just kind of following this exact same pattern of history. They're like, we have this technology. We love fossil fuels. We've been doing this, you mm-hmm. know, and this like endless expansion of capitalism that like comes out of yep. um, this space of like this organization of power and these specific technologies is leading to an extreme environmental collapse. Yep. And the capitalists are like, well, we don't care because we have the domination, like we have the power to continue. And so we're going to, you can't really stop us because the technology that we have puts us in this extreme position of power. And like the economic system that we've developed out of this technology puts us in this extreme position of power. So we're just going to dominate the world to death, right? And yep. so now we're reaching the end of history or perhaps we have now passed the end of history. Um, and it is... A situation where if we continue in this this mode that you've been talking about where people who have the technology just continue to dominate everyone around them, it inevitably leads to death and destruction for yes. all of us. Yes. And honestly, like this is one of the main important observations that Lenin made. Okay. Which was that like even if capitalism is sort of like inevitably going to change into some other sort of like form. Right. Which would be suggested by historical materialism, you know, because like all economic forms so far have like sort of transformed into something else. Even if that is true, it's not that it's going to inevitably change into one that we like, first of all, (laughs) or Mm -hmm. one that's good for anybody. Right. Um, And it's also not going to inevitably um, like it's it's not going to happen all by itself. Right. And if we want socialism, if we want the the relations of production to shift to want towards one that's more equitable and, and sane and, and easy for us to manage right um as a society then we have to make it happen right which is like this sort of the basis of like marxist leninism right okay which is the idea that you have to create a revolutionary vanguard okay. that can work within I... within the superstructure to sort of like change things. wow i feel like i understand this on a level that i haven't before because i'm going to be honest with the listeners i have no fucking idea what marxists are talking about most of the time <laughs> i don't know what they're saying and it is confusing. But this conversation is helping me get some clarity on it. Because basically, if I could like reiterate what you just said, in other words, like I kind of, because I've understood the concept of the vanguard before. The vanguard is is basically this like group of like educated people who are like in charge of basically like um, 
kind of like controlling the way that the masses are like educated about something. Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah. They're, like, they're, they're guiding the, yeah. They're like in charge of guiding the superstructure element though. Sort of. Yeah. Like they're in charge of guiding the ideology yes. that, that is necessary to, to guide the change. Right. Yep. So basically it's like in the, in the Marxist Leninist version, they're being like, okay, yes, like base, leads to superstructure but if we don't want that to just keep happening sort of like randomly we need to also do an intervention at the level of superstructure through a vanguard who is challenging things on an ideological level that's yeah. basically what that means you could definitely think of it that way yeah. okay interesting yeah okay so to return to the original question you've given a bunch of examples about technology driving the force of history is there anything else that you want to say about that before we move on to the next question um, I don't know. There's like so many examples, but, um, maybe I'll just finish up with the horse people real right, quick okay. because it's, it's, it's just, I think it's like important. So these people who did develop horseback riding and wagons and chariots, um, then proceeded to expand out of Ukraine, um, into Europe and much of the rest of the world. They spoke a language called that we now call Proto-Indo-European. Oh yes. And now literally one half of the world's population speaks an Indo-European language. Right. Descended from the language spoken by that one group of like Bronze Age right. step herders. Yeah. Right. And the reason for that is their fucking horses. Right. That makes you know? a lot of sense. The population of Europe now carries no male line DNA right. from those farmers. Right. That, that I was talking about earlier. Right. None. Because they were so thoroughly and completely um, invaded by those horse people. Right. Um, and every European civilization you ever heard of. The Greeks, the Romans, like, you know, the Celts, all yeah. those people all descended um, either directly or in terms of the fact that they were incorporated into the system um, of those horse people. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, I feel like I kind of want to prod you for another example, but. Yeah. Uh, I love examples. So I remember you writing something about this on the internet and maybe you might be jogged by this but I think you were talking about because you've given some examples like this this example that you're talking about with the the people who domesticated horses this is like a very old 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 yeah, example yeah. it's like from fucking back in the day yeah um but I remember you writing online somewhere about you were talking about the conditions that led to like the European expansion and colonialism mm -hmm. um and you were challenging like the essentialist narrative that like um, that this comes out of some some special, unique character of Europeans rather than mm -hmm. the historical and technological reality of that time. Yeah. And you talked about some other culture. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do know what you're talking about. Okay, please speak about it. Yeah. So, I mean, basically the idea that, like, Europeans invented, like, empires. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right, okay. Yes, talk <laughs> um, about this a little bit. Is this sort of, like, very, like, shallow like view that people have like when they don't have like much of a, of a historical education. Right. Yeah. Um, and the point that I was just trying to make in that, I, I remember the post you're talking about was just that like there are, when, when there's like a group of people living in a place and they have a particular like set of conditions yeah. that exist there, um, it is very likely that they are then going to invent giant empires. Right. <laughs> you okay. Know? And like those conditions include things like having some kind of technological superiority to their neighbors. Right. For whatever reason, um, having access to um, some like new kind of weaponry or like horses count as a weaponry. Right. You know, um, having a um, 
a sort of like social context that has involved a lot of warfare in general. So people are like used to it and good at it, you know? Um, and there are like other, oh yeah. And, and, you know, large populations right. from, from agriculture basically. Um, and when you have like combos like that, you start getting, um, these like very like aggressive warlike areas, you know? Right. Um, and also like another thing is that these aggressive warlike areas, like as we were talking about earlier, the superstructure tends to look like the base. So if the base involves conquering people and taking their shit, which is, which is like a time honored tradition of like much of the old world right. um, and parts of the new world, um, then the superstructure will reflect that in right. a certain way. And what you will get is ideologies which glorify and validate um, the idea of going to other places and taking their shit right. or taking them. Yeah. And know? so can you talk about, and, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And so when you think about that, you're like, okay, so like what other areas right. in the world um, had circumstances that were similar to that? Yes. And you're like, oh. Eastern Mediterranean, Persia, um, Northern India, and China okay. are like the main ones. Okay. You know? And then when you look at like the major empires in world history, they're all centered on those areas. Right. You know? So like the Byzantine Empire and the Ottoman Empire um, and the Eastern Roman Empire are all Eastern Eastern Mediterranean. Right. right? Um, the like Persia has been ruled by a bunch of different people. Because mainly because guys on horses kept coming down out of the steps and fucking killing everyone. Right. But like it's always been Persia. Right. And it's been a gigantic empire since like prehistory. Right. You know? Um, and yeah, Northern India, it's like has a history actually very remarkably similar to Europe where it was like at times it was incorporated into a big empire and at times it was a bunch of little kingdoms fighting each other. Right. But they were, you know, they had like, um, metal working from like way, way, way back and they've had, they've been literate from way, way, way back. And they've had like these like centralized agricultural states from way, way, way back. And so it's like very, very similar to European history in, in India and then China, you know, and China had like a, a, a bit of a weirder, um, trajectory because it's been a unified empire for like most of its history which is unlike europe which was has like historically been like a lot of like smaller states yeah um so that created a bit of a different trajectory for china but yeah like in these areas where you have these like very centralized um warlike states with like standing armies and like like literature and this kind of thing Mm -hmm. you you end up with empires okay um yeah yeah. that makes sense okay thanks for saying that Um, okay, so we have come to this question several times already, so now we're going to dive into it more explicitly. Um, let's talk about whiteness. So in the current, like, nexus, social justice, understandings of power and history, very often whiteness is invoked as a major driver of history and an explanation for why power structures look the way that they currently do. Mm-hmm. Everything from climate change, you know, to capitalism, to um, the gender binary, <laughs> to like all sorts of things today mm-hmm. um, in social justice culture are understood and explained through invoking this thing called whiteness. Mm-hmm. That whiteness is a construct that, or I mean, they wouldn't call it a construct. Whiteness is a an essence spiritual essence like an essence of some kind some kind of inherent thing inside of white people that is um driving all of this stuff and so jay's currently working on an article um they've been writing it for a while it's really good and it's going to be on jlsla.com once they've finished it so you can go read that um 
check the website to see if it's up by the time this episode's come out. Maybe that'll motivate Jay to finish writing it. Um, but I really, it's something that Jay and I have talked about a lot and I think they're doing a good job of like just making it really concrete in the article. And one of the things that they said that is very concrete for me is that um, whiteness or white people are not the creators of colonial capitalism, but instead colonial capitalism is the creators of whiteness or white people. So do you want to talk about what the fuck that means for people? Yeah, okay, race is fake. So let's just get that out of the way. Race is totally fake. It's not real. It doesn't correlate to any like real material, like genetic or whatever like thing in the real world, okay? Yeah. Um, Can we just stay there for a second? Because I think that's so hard for people to understand. Sure. Um, And I just want to like, I don't want people to just, you know, I think in social justice culture, people constantly say like, sort of like dogmatic orthodoxies and demand that people believe them without actually like inviting them to think for themselves about that. And I think because the idea that race is a social construction goes so like against the essentialism, both of traditional racism and of the anti-racism of social justice culture, people are like, what the fuck do you mean by that? You know? Um, And so concretely, like basically on like a genetic level, there are like more genetic differences like, what is it, between, within a racial group than, like, between them or something like that? Yeah, yeah, there's there's way more, like, variance, like, within a so-called racial group than yes. there is between racial groups. Um, I, that was established a long time ago. Um, and also, just in general, if, you, if you're looking at a genetic level, yes. there's, like, there's, like, hundreds of groups that you could call, like, a, a genetic grouping, you right. know? It also depends, like, which genes you're looking at, yeah. you know? Because there's all these, like, haplogroups and shit, you know? Yeah. And you can trace, you can trace these genetic markers through history yeah and you can be like this group or like the ancestors of this group yeah. did you know exist they moved around they For were sure. like whatever and we're not saying that that isn't real of course but what race is is so a phenotype is how would you define a phenotype the way the genes express themselves okay and so basically in like basic like layperson language like the way that we understand race and the reason why race seems so self-evidently real to people is because people look different from each other, mm-hmm. right? So like different people look different from each other and like yeah. different groups of people share certain um, physical characteristics. I'm sorry I'm taking this to such a sort of like one-on-one level, but I feel like we haven't talked about this on the podcast, so I just want people to like understand it before I, you dive off. Does sure. that make sense? Yeah. So like for example, people will say that like blackness, like to be black is a specific race Mm -hmm. and then people will say it's obviously true because black people share a phenotype but if you look at like africa as a continent Mm -hmm. you can actually see that people don't look the same in africa (laughs) they look profoundly different depending on where they're from yes right and it's also the funniest one because like i think that black people is like one of the most sort of like widely sort of accepted races um from as as a as a result of the history of like like right. European colonialism, yes, um, to the point where you know people in like China or whatever have no problem being like that as a black person, right? You know, um, but it, like like the like humans are from Africa, right? Okay, so what that means is that the the humans who left Africa at one point a very long time ago, everyone outside of Africa is descended from that one group of people, right? Okay, and everyone within Africa is. Um, are descendants of the like hundreds of different groups right. that were in Africa that entire time. You right. know? And so there's far more genetic diversity within the continent of Africa than there is 
anywhere else. Right. Which so is like a very... Korean and like an Icelander and like someone from Australia, like like an Aboriginal from Australia, like all are more genetically similar to each other right. than any of them are to any African. Right. Um, and or like they're equally related, like whatever you get, you get what I'm saying. And like within Africa, there is like way, way more genetic variety right. than there is between like a Korean and an Icelander. Right. And so whatever, it's it's like just on a basic level, you know, the idea that we have really been trained to see a number of like physical characteristics including like skin tone hair type things like this Mm -hmm. as like indicators of racial groups Mm -hmm. is a social construction yes and so it's not actually true that it's a racial group it's actually true that people have a variety of different kinds of phenotypes and that if you look at where people live in the world you can see instead of it being these distinct groups you can see that it's like a range of skin tones and a range of hair types that vary across places. Yeah, and and very smoothly too. Yes. In, in a lot of places, like you know, obviously it's it's a bit it's a bit like um, um, jumbled up because of human migrations, right? right? But like honestly, like if if you if you like start in like France and then like move east to yeah. like Japan, there is like honestly like a very like gradual sort of like right. line yeah. um, of what people's phenotype looks like. Yeah. And if you are like smack dab in the middle of Central Asia, people look like they're very mixed between like all the different groups around them because they are. Yes. And so the reason that this is important is because this idea, this literal mythology of race right? That there are these distinct groups who are basically like a different kind of human being, mm-hmm. which is what it's what race and racism, that's what that is. It's the idea that human beings can be divided into groups that are different kinds of humans mm-hmm. and that the lines between those are clear and distinct, but also that these groups have certain essential qualities yes. that have to do with their, um, like their values, their, their like their traits, yeah. like who they are as people. Their capacities. Yeah, their capacities. What um, kinds of cultures they produce. Yeah, like what they're good at, what they're not good at, what their what their like inherent like um values and like beliefs yeah. are going to be. It's like Dungeons and Dragons stats. Yeah, exactly. Except about human beings. And yeah. so that's literally what racism is. Like to believe that by looking at somebody's phenotype, you can tell what type and I'm putting type in quotations of person they are and you can tell a bunch of information about who they are as a person and like what they are likely to believe what they are likely to be capable of what what kind of person they are that is what racism is and Mm -hmm. it is something that we strongly oppose Mm -hmm. and think that is always wrong because it erases the specificity of people Mm -hmm. and also the specificity of cultures over time yes so I just wanted to make that as clear as possible, um, and we'll probably talk about it more in other episodes, but I don't think we'd actually sort of broken down what we mean by that in a very simple way, so I just wanted to say that before getting into it. So go ahead. Yeah, totally. Okay, so like, yeah, if you if you try as much as you can to sort of get the idea of race out of your head and then imagine Eurasia um, or even like Afro-Eurasia, like the old world, as this sort of like quite like gradual sort of um, range of phenotypes and peoples that are just like living from one end of it to the other, you know, um, then we can start. Okay. okay. So <laughs> there's just people yeah. and they speak different languages and they have different kind of like customs and whatever. And, and they, they have all, different kinds of technology depending and they on where they're technology at. And they like look like they look different from one another, whatever. Yeah. Um, but it's all pretty gradual. And also each group is definitely like connected to the, their neighbor group. Yeah. Um, and also sometimes much further through means of trade and, and, and so on. Yeah. Um, so this is the case. 
And around 1500, like a little bit before, um, there was one group of states in one corner of Eurasia um, that figured out like cer- certain new ways of projecting their power effectively abroad, particularly over the sea. All right. Um, they had access to new kinds of sail- sailing technology. And there was also like some political upheavals that had been happening in Asia that meant that their traditional trading routes were blocked off. Mm. Um, and they were also in the process of um, completing a series of like religious and territorial wars, um, primarily in Spain, um, against uh, North Africans. Okay. Because Spain had been ruled by Muslim North Africans for the past like 900 years. Okay. Um, and so that was the context. And the, the ruling class in this area um, like definitely saw territory as, you know, a stock of wealth materials that they could extract. They could use various forms of unfree labor, whether it's like serfs or peasants or slaves or whatever, to extract it, bring that shit back to them. They use it to be rich and continue their elite ways. Mm-hmm. And so they fight over pieces of territory. Right? Mm-hmm. The ruling class fights over pieces of territory. And this is basically h- how that society looks. Um, now, up until around that time, that meant fighting over bits of Europe and sometimes like areas around the Mediterranean. Yes? I just want to interject with one thing that yes. I want to say before you continue. Looking back at this time Mm -hmm. from where we are now Mm -hmm. people are going to say that those people that you're describing are white people wrong they're just people in part of eurasia right and so the reason that that's wrong is because the concept as we currently understand whiteness did not exist yet no and so they did not think of themselves as white people and so when we call those people white we are actually projecting back in time a construct a way of dividing human beings that did not yet exist. Yes. So I just wanted to point that out. So people keep that in their mind while you're talking. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I'm purposefully not saying Europeans. Yeah. They're just people living in one corner of Eurasia. Yeah. In a series of... Did they understand themselves as Europeans though? Like they knew about... Did Europe exist? Yes, Europe existed. They they thought of themselves as Europeans um, to an extent, you know? It depends like which area. Yeah. Um, Mostly they thought of themselves as Christians. Okay, interesting. Christendom. Yes, that was, makes sense. Was the important civilizational category. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, all this is happening, blah, blah, blah. They've been fighting over bits of Europe and bits of like the Mediterranean coast for like a while. Um, they, they make some like certain like a bit further afield conquests like Spain takes over the Canary Isles, which are sort of off the coast of Africa. Um, they're like little islands, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, one of the ships of this ruling class um, more or less accidentally bumps into the New World. Okay. And by the New World, in this case, you're talking about South America. Well, the Caribbean. Okay. But yeah, the Americas. Okay. And that was Columbus. Um, and okay, so then you have this this ruling elite that is like, we have just dis- discovered, um, gained access to this like very large landmass. Okay. Full of um, a lot of gold, which they really liked, and also full of millions of people who had never seen a horse. Right. Um, because there are no horses. Right. In the New World at that time. Right. Doesn't exist. In the New World, they don't have 
pack animals. Like right. the the only thing they have that's comparable is llamas. Okay. Um, and llamas can't pull a cart, and you can't ride them. Okay. Because they're not big enough. Okay. Um, so they don't they don't have access to horses in the new world, and they don't have resistance to very common diseases from the old world. Mm-hmm. And so the end result of that is the world we're living in. Um, um, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. You had a question. I just. I know I'm on like a crazy no, historical tangent. Right I now. really want to go on this historical tangent. I want to thoroughly go on it because I think it's important. I also wanted to point out something that you've explained to me before, which is that in the quote new world, and so in this case, I guess what we would now call South America or perhaps Central America, there were existing empires. Yes. Um, and so this is important because people don't always keep this in mind. Mm-hmm. And part of the um, mythology of colonialism is that, you know, there was no, like everything was just sort of undeveloped and chaotic over there. Yeah. Right? Yes. So there were empires that existed. And I remember you telling me a story about a specific empire that existed that was currently going through a crazy time, mm-hmm. like a civil war or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that it just was an accident of history that the people from Europe happened to arrive at the time that this major empire was like in shambles due to this internal conflict. And that if that had not been the case, the outcome of history could have been very different. Can you just talk about that for a second? Yeah. So that's the Inca. Yeah. um, Which was an enormous empire in what's now Peru and Uh the surrounding areas. Um, Very sophisticated in a lot of ways. Um, also very brutal <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and it's not quite an accident of history okay. because a lot of historians think that the reason why that empire was going through an insane civil war was that there had recently been a devastating plague of smallpox. Oh, so basically... Which had, had spread faster than Europeans could, could travel. Okay, so that makes sense. So basically there had been some contact. This yes. had caused a plague. Yes. And then the plague had caused a an upheaval which had led to like a civil war of some kind. Yeah. And so the empire itself was basically going through the shock waves of this having happened. Mm-hmm. And so when the Europeans caught up with their germs, uh, everything was all chaotic and yes. they were the, and much, much easier to sort of take advantage and the of. Inca were like not in their normal state in which they probably could have potentially fought off the invaders. At least for a while, for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the other thing is that in the New World, even though a lot of, or the Americas, whatever, it's it's unfortunate that there isn't a better name for like this pair of continents, you yeah. know, um, but whatever. Um, they also didn't have access to like steel, you know. Right. Um, Metalworking had developed in a, in a quite different way in the New World um, for a variety of reasons, but uh, yeah, they didn't, they didn't have access to steel. So it's like the, 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 the Spanish had, you know, they were, they showed up and they had, um, at that time it was pretty much knights on horses like that was like more or less like the level they were at you know and compared to their neighbors they were not technologically sophisticated you know right they they could not conquer like the ottoman empire or something like that you know which is why they were going around looking trying to find ways to china because they like they couldn't fuck with these like big empires in the middle of the world right um in 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 the near east and like central asia right um but in comparison to the peoples that they were encountering in the new world, they did have this military advantage. Right. Mainly in the form of horses, which were just insane for people. Like, they were just like, what the fuck are we even seeing? Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and secondly, in the form of steel, which yeah. meant that they had, like, armor 
that was like impossible for um what like the weapons that people had access to 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 um get through yeah right? um and they had like swords and stuff you know that were like they're they were basically unbreakable by the standards of the people that they were fighting yeah um so yeah. i mean i know we're going on tangents and i want to get back to the original question in a second but i just i think this is important because part of the like identitarian essentialist mythology of social justice culture is that people have this idea um, about indigenous people in the Americas as being sort of like inherently and essentially more peaceful, more environmental, Mm -hmm. more equitable. Mm -hmm. Um, And this idea that this comes from like an inherent and essential set of like values that indigenous people sort of naturally have. Mm -hmm. And I know you've pointed this out before in your writing and we've talked about it, but basically that framing in and of itself is a type of racism that ignores the uh, complexity and specificity of like a whole bunch of different groups across history who are indigenous to the North Americas. And you know, just to put it into the context of this episode and what we're talking about, just like everywhere else, the superstructure was following the base Mm -hmm. because indigenous people are not a special kind of people. Mm -hmm. They're humans. Mm -hmm. And so just like all human cultures, they had various types of technologies that were um, providing for their basic needs. And those different technologies were being organized in various ways, which were then leading to various kinds of superstructures, meaning various kinds of societies, various kinds of cultures, various kinds of you know, ideology, mythology, religion. And that looked different in different places and it looked different at different time periods. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't just this mass of like sort of like undifferentiated um, people who all shared like peaceful and environmental values. No, absolutely not. And um, let's talk about the Aztec for a second, because the Aztec Empire was the big the big empire in Mexico that yeah. that were that Europeans were encountering. Um, and the Aztec like were fucking hated by everyone around them, right? Um, because the way that their superstructure had developed, um, which again is the ideology of the ruling class of the society that is currently dominant, right? Yeah. Um, was that they had to go raiding for captives constantly right. against their neighbors, right? Because their um, their ideology said that you needed to sacrifice war captives to the gods, right? Right, um, and so they would constantly go out and just be like slave raiding, um, and then you know taking these people back and killing them in like pretty horrible ways, and so everyone around them fucking hated them. So right? wait, they they would enslave people, and then some of those people they would kill as a sacrifice. Yeah, like they would take captives. Right, like but some captives. of them, but some of them were for enslavement. Um, that I'm actually not sure okay. about. But I know that like a major part of their like war aims were these sort of like um, ritual sacrifices okay. that they would do. You right. know? Um, and well, not like, really great, but just... yeah, but like you know, um, um, conveniently, um, if you have, if you're able to sort of like constantly be um, successfully like attacking your neighbors and taking away a bunch of like strong men right. and then killing them, then you're able to like dominate your neighbors very effectively. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, so that's why that like works out with the base. You know? Right. Um, but yeah, you know, it was a very large empire, very sophisticated in a bunch of ways. Like um, the, their capital city, which is like where Mexico city now is, um, was as big or bigger than like any city in the old world. It was gigantic. They had like really, really advanced like agricultural techniques that allowed them to have a huge population, which again, Demographic advantage allows you to dominate your neighbors. And yeah, there was a series of states like this um, throughout 
Central America and parts of South America. Um, and also like in like further north, you know, there were there were definitely states and civilizations that we don't know that much about mm-hmm. because um, when Europeans showed up with like um, like they had either sort of like fallen apart probably because of disease Mm -hmm. or maybe they were a bit older like we're not totally sure but like around like mississippi there was like definitely people building like very large buildings and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and then you know there was groups like the um the iroquois the haudenosaunee yeah um who were like not exactly a state but they were like very you know it was it was close enough you know very organized very organized agricultural settled like they had like basically a standing military like you know yeah um yeah and so um where was i in my tangent Well, I just wanted to take a second to talk about that because I think that, um, like, a lot of the colonial mythology, the racist colonial mythology that, you know, is sort of embedded in in the story of how um, the, quote, new world was settled is this idea that, like, nothing was really there or there was nothing that important there in the first place. Right, right, right. And, in fact, there were entire cultures and civilizations that had yeah. existed for long periods of time that were very distinct from each other, um, that very, had different kinds of technology, different yeah. kinds of whatever, different cultures, different technologies. And so that racist like colonial narrative of like well there was what's that thing like terra nullis or something like that it's basically like nothing's there so it's basically fine it's just like the wild and like perhaps like quote savages who live there this is Mm -hmm. like a very racist um mythology that justifies colonialism but like what i also was trying to point out is that like the social justice like essentialist narrative is kind of the same thing but just in a slightly different way mm-hmm. by being like okay we're not saying it's terra nullis there were people there but those people were an undifferentiated across time and space kind of like two-dimensional character who share these very like very positive like environmental equitable yeah. values that were totally not related to any kind of technology yeah. or and like they all love nature and sharing yeah like this kind yeah. of thing is also an extremely racist narrative that erases it it literally removes indigenous people from history it doesn't allow them to have the same kinds of things that we're talking about when we're talking about europe about the fucking base and the superstructure and the fact that these people like all people were developing different technologies and those technologies were impacting their their cultures and those varied yes. from place to place and from time to time. Absolutely. And impacting who was in charge within those cultures. Yeah. So, Actually, I want to talk about the Beaver Wars in a bit. So remind me to talk about the Beaver Wars. Okay. Well, do you want to talk about that now before we go forward? No. Okay. okay. Let's go forward. Yeah. Let's go forward. So basically, um, as Europe starts its expansion into the new world, like um, huge amounts of material um, wealth start flowing back into Europe. This kickstarts um, mercantilism and then capitalism. Um, and okay, the, wait, we have to define mercantilism. Okay, it's basically like a colonial economy, like okay. where you're extracting wealth from abroad, bringing it back to the metropole, turning it turning it into, um, you know, manufactured goods and so on, and selling it back, and so- selling it back to your colonies or to like other European countries. Okay, great. Right? So it's basically the, the idea that you build up a big colonial empire for raw materials. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, and so the base of the uh, European economies changes. Right. Right. As a result of that. Um, and Europe, there's there's kind of this like snowballing effect where Europe gets like more and more powerful because of this. And so they need, like based on their own base now, they need to keep expanding and getting more places yep. to get raw materials from yep. and more people to keep selling their shit to. Yep. And if they don't, a bigger European country will come by and take right. them over basically. Okay. 
And so they're creating mythologies, like they're creating superstructures to now justify, explain, make sense of this base that they have. Yeah, for sure. So there's like, there's all kinds of, like Europe is like a big region. A lot of people, a lot of different people, a lot of different ideas. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, like any other sort of like meta culture, um, there's lots of people who have lots of different ideas about stuff, right. you know, and they're not all the same. Yeah. There's a lot of conflict, actually, you know. Yeah. Um, but the the ideas that tend to win out in anything like that are going to be the ones that tend to justify whatever the fuck the elites are doing. <laughs> because, right. Because, you know, yeah. the elites are the ones who run everything, right? Yeah. Um, and so... What you would expect in a situation like that is for any ideas that sort of like hinder the um, what the elites are up to that is making them very powerful and strong will be pushed to the side, marginalized. Mm -hmm. And then any ideas that justify that, um, what the elites are up to, will be uh, validated and right. taken up. Right? right. And so in a certain sense, there's like individual members of the elite that might be like searching around for like ideas that justify them. But it's more of an organic process, right. honestly, you know. Um, it's just people like growing up and, you know, looking at the world around them, taking in ideas and, you know, it's like very natural that they're going to sort of like agree with ideas that, that help them. You yeah. Know? Um, or that justify their, the things that they see around them. Right. Um, and so a couple of things happen, um, that lead to the construction of whiteness, um, Let's get into a few of them pretty briefly. Um, so there was already a bit of an understanding of like races of man that existed in Europe prior to the development of race as we think of it today. Yes. So that was one of the components. Um, and it was, it was actually quite distinct from the way that we think about race today. Very much so. And when, it was when race was first really like, like articulated as a concept, it was in France. Okay. Um, and it was by French aristocrats. Okay. And its purpose was to differentiate the nobility right. of France from the peasantry. Interesting. Yes. It was very much a class thing. Yeah. It was a way to say that the ruling class was not only better and different by virtue of the fact that they ruled, but also by virtue of their blood. Right. Their ancestry. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, yes, right? yes. Like royal blood and stuff like this. Yes. And so basically what these French aristocrats were saying was that they were the descendants of uh, the Germanic conquerors. Right. Um, and the peasants were the descendants of the like Roman slaves. Right. More or less. Right. Um, and so they're like, we came in on horses, kill everybody, took over. And that is why we have the right to rule. Yeah. But this is quite distinct from the current way that we think about race as yes. these like yes. phenotypical, um, and like across the globe, like distinct groups totally. of people. And, and you know, these, these guys would say things like, oh yes, like us nobility are so much, you know, more beautiful right. and whatever than these sort of like swarthy peasants right. or whatever. And it's like, well, maybe it's because the swarthy peasants work in the sun all day and yeah. like whatever. But the point is like it, they, it, it had a different kind of flavor very much so than the way that we currently think and about race. And I want to say that if we, using the framing of race that we have today, Mm. were to look at that group of people who are saying that they're different races, we would see them as the same race. Yes, white. Because they are both white. Yes, exactly. In the way that we understand yeah. race but today. So, so that was one of the precursors of the modern conception of race. Another um, element that went into it later yeah. um, was more modern ideas about evolution. Right. Um, so, yeah. I just want to, I'm wondering if we're going to mention Ireland at some point. We are. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and ideas about evolution really sort of like, um, put all this into overdrive because it was like a revolution in the way that we 
categorized living beings, yeah. you know? And before the way that we had categorized living beings was quite willy nilly. Um, but with like Linnaeus and Darwin, um, it started to be like much more understood that there was these sort of like distinct lineages, you know, yes. and that they, were, they had these sort of like inherent differences. It also created an idea that basically for the first time we were understanding that humans came from animals mm -hmm. that there was this like process in which we were basically humanized right from uh, from apes into humans yes which was shocking to people you right. know right. and then um if you take that way of thinking you could also imagine that certain people are at different places along that trajectory yes that like some people are more fully evolved into human and others are somewhere closer to being animal yes and so i think that that also highly like influenced the conception of race that we have today yeah absolutely it did so with those two things you have the basically the components of of race ideology like ready to go yeah you know? um and then you have like this other sort of debate that's going on or this this conflict between religious ways of looking at the world mm -hmm. and racial ways of looking at the world. Um, and so this is where Ireland is interesting, but mm. I'll get to that in a second. Basically the teachings of the Catholic church at this time were like in early colonialism, right? Were that um, you can definitely go around enslaving people, taking their shit, murdering them, whatever. But if you convert them and you're supposed to convert them, right. you can't. Right. Um, if you convert them, if they become Catholics, um, then they have some rights. You know, right. they have like similar rights to like European peasants or whatever. Right. Um, and therefore, you can't. You're not supposed to enslave them. Right. Um, and like, too much murdering and, and pillaging <laughs> is like frowned upon. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, and if possible, they should be sort of like brought into the um, the community of the church. Yeah. You know. Um, and the Pope should be the guy who rules everything over them. Yeah. Um, and they will be new sort of like temporal powers in the world, you know, under the power of the Pope. Um, and so that's what the Catholic Church wanted. Right. Um, and they, there's like a long record of the Catholic Church and like Catholic monarchs um, writing to like conquistadors and stuff in the New World and being like, stop enslaving everyone and stealing their shit and killing them. Can I just interject? Because this is like I'm having just like a light bulb moment. Yes. So basically it's like if we look at the church as a superstructure, you know, if we look at the church as like an, an ideological outgrowth yes. of like various bases, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. as the base is changing to this um, mercantilism and then colonialism to this idea that what we need to be doing is expanding outward and like extracting and we need to be um, getting more and more um, land that we're going to get through violent means and we're going to be like dominating, controlling all of these people to expand this base, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. That superstructure of the church, which is telling you that you have a limit to the ways that you can do that because you're supposed to be bringing people into the church, is now it's like there's like a breach between the base and the superstructure because that superstructure is not flowing from that base anymore. Mm -hmm. And so the base is like we can't be having this as we need other ways to make sense of and justify what we're doing. 100%. So enter in race ideology. We need other ways of thinking about this. Absolutely. For sure. Um, and because like the new, like the elites in Europe are making like absolutely enormous amounts of money yeah. off of this, you know, money, power, influence, prestige, you know, they, they love what's going on. Yeah. Um, at least the ones who are like winning yeah. <laughs> love, love what's going on. So they sort of, they're like, oh, you know, 
um, with this like religious stuff. And this is where Ireland comes in because Ireland in many ways was like a test run for European colonialism, you know? But the Irish were Catholic, extremely so. Yes. <laughs> very, very, very religious Christians, yeah. you know? And so technically, you're not supposed to be fucking doing like the extremely gnarly shit that the English were doing to them. Right. And and in Ireland is one of the first places where this kind of like race ideology right. around colonialism is articulated. Right. Um, where like the the English colonizers of ireland were sort of like well they're okay fine they're they're christian but they're like are they like really like us yeah they're not really like us they're kind of like animals almost you know yeah. and they start sort of like really playing up like whatever phenotypic differences they thought they saw and like all this and 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 differentiating themselves sort of like racially or like by blood yeah um from the irish and it's a very i think instructive example because of the fact that today under the current racial mythology there is no question that irish people are white Mm -hmm. like and when we actually like look at white people like if you were to look at like an irish person like a white irish person and a like white like english person or something like this yeah based on the way that we are taught to see under the current racial mythology Mm -hmm. we would not see it much of a difference yeah we would see two white people yeah but back then they literally were like playing up all of this stuff that oh, yeah. that Irish people were in some totally different phenotype, and they literally were like drawing pictures yeah. to try to emphasize diff- like the the animalistic qualities of Irish people, yeah. um, and that Irish people were like more ape like mm-hmm. than English people, mm-hmm. and so, but it's totally like that would never hold up in the mythology of race today. So the point of that is just to say that if if race is some kind of like obvious natural categorization. Yeah. How is it that groups can move from one to another over the course of history? Oh yeah, totally. Right? And yeah, and when they were first articulating race, they were like, oh, you're a member of the Alpine type. Right. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? You know? Um, and now it's just like white. Yeah. And white is like has massively expanded in, yeah. in what it refers to. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting because yeah, like, so from the religious perspective of like Christendom, like there's lots of people that can be Christians. If they're Christians, they're like more or less like equal, you know? Um, and that's, that's fine and good. So people can be incorporated into the Catholic church. The word Catholic means universal. It's the Mm. universal church. It is meant to be the church of everyone, you know? Um, but if you are in the business of trying to, um, force foreign people to be in a completely subservient position, uh, which became like the new sort of like economic form, right. um, you can't have them be incorporated into your group. And yeah. so the the interesting thing about race is that the way that it was articulated was that you cannot join. Um, now, how it worked out in history is that groups did join right. over time, like the Irish. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. There was, yeah. it was always like fought against, you know? Right. Um, and yeah, and race is much more exclusive, right? Yeah. And particularly when it comes to blackness, who very um, coincidentally were like the enslaved class yes. in like the new world societies, they could not ever join whiteness. Yes. And that is what the one drop rule is. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's talk about this a little bit. So the, like the slave trade mm-hmm. and slavery in an American context and like some other contexts, but like this particular kind of slavery that was justified through race. Yeah plays a very specific role in the invention of race as we currently understand it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
neither Jay and I are, are historians, you know, so if you are a historian listening to this, you're probably like, there's so many things that you're missing or whatever. We're giving like a very Coles Notes version of this, you know, yeah. and we definitely invite people to look into it in more detail. But basically, you know, slavery to, because slavery has always existed all over the world in all sorts of different ways. Yeah. Right? Like slavery is not new here. No. Slavery has existed in many, many different ways. But what's different about this kind of slavery is that it is justified through racial categorization specifically, right? Not just like through the idea that like this is like some other group that we're like, you know, going out and capturing in war and then bringing back, but that they're a different kind of person, right? And so, and also like a kind of person who is more like an animal. And so therefore we can feel justified in treating them more like how we treat animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and in an important part of this is that in the United States, like in the context of slavery and probably in other places that were colonized and had slavery going on, there were also simultaneously to enslavement, there was also like poor working people, mm-hmm. right? Who were also being exploited, but in a less like extremely abjectly disturbing way, but still being exploited, right? There were workers who under capitalism did not have very much and who were not part of the ruling class and who were also being dominated by the ruling class. And who were working like 14 hour days in fucking factories and and who were living in abject poverty and they had freedom in a different way, but not really freedom because they were living under capitalism. Completely dominated. It sucked. Yeah. So there were specific historical examples under which the working people and the enslaved people found their common interest and were like, damn, we're both being fucked over by the same people. Yeah. Or like working people of like European extraction and working people of like ex-slave extraction. Right. Yeah. We're like, let's rise up and be fucking pissed off about this. Yeah. And so this was a very obvious threat to capitalism as it was existing at that time. For sure. And so really it was of fundamental importance that Working people and enslaved people, who are also working, obviously, um, could not see themselves as the same kind of people. Mm -hmm. And so, like, the invention of whiteness was, like, this kind of, like, offering to workers by being, like, you have more in common with your rulers Mm -hmm. than you do with these enslaved people. Yeah. And that if you sort of stay inside the loyalty to this newly invented racial group, maybe one day you might be one of the rulers. Right. Right? Like that's the sort of weird promise that is offered that like if you if you stay loyal, then you will get rewards. Right. But if you betray your rulers and you find allegiance with these enslaved people, um, then you will never be able to get rewards because you are whatever, like something like this, right? That's like a very basic way of understanding it. But I think that from the beginning, the understanding of race as we currently have was to extinguish the threat of solidarity. It was, it was definitely one of the functions for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, and to sort of like make sure that the, um, the people from the colonial countries, um, could like work together effectively against the people that they were colonizing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so in this way, the transformation of the economies of the European, of the Western European countries, um, 
paved the way for the adoption of race ideology right um as a, a necessary part of their superstructure um or an extremely helpful part of their superstructure you know and so in that way it is the development of colonial capitalism that creates whiteness not the other way around and it's only after people create whiteness that they can start thinking of, this, of themselves as white yeah and so before that there were no white people yeah um and arguably there are no white people because whiteness yes. is, is completely fake but there are now many many people who have been inculcated with some version of race ideology yeah and therefore think of themselves as white yeah right um but yeah so i guess that's the answer to that question yeah so that was like a long and very full of many tangents thing but i think it's important for people to think about yes um okay wait now i'm going to talk about the beaver wars. yeah i was just like what about the beaver wars just super it's it's like a, a kind of a brief aside but um the idea that indigenous people in the americas were sort of like completely separate on some i don't know spiritual or essential level yeah from the kinds of motivations that Europeans had and not just Europeans, but people in like the rest of the world who were all engaged in warfare and trade and colonialism and blah, blah, blah is false. Yeah. Um, and a really good example of this is the Beaver Wars. And so in the 1600s, um, the Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy got access to large amounts of firearms mm -hmm. from new European allies, particularly the English and the Dutch. They got access to these because they were being incorporated into the global market, mm. which Europeans dominated at that time with their sailing ships. Right. Right. Um, but they had previously been in a trade network, uh, an American trade network that, you know, stretched across the continents. Right. There was a very, very, very lengthy um, trade trade networks all, all across the Americas. And they were trading like from one end of the continent to another. And they were part of that. But now they're being incorporated into the, the whole like, global one. Yeah. Right. And so they had access to firearms for the first time, which was like transforming the way that they could interact with their neighbors. And they also um, were now in the position of having being the provider of this extremely lucrative resource. Right. Beavers. Right. Beaver pelts. Right. Which had been almost hunted to extinction in Europe. Um, and there was huge supplies of beavers in North America bigger beavers too than the european ones um and and the the iroquois were very good at you know getting beavers and and they could sell them for more weapons right right um and so what do you think happened here um if you if you think that like because the iroquois are closer to the earth and you know um have a very like uh balanced way of looking at the world and so on um they would just decide to not use the weapons um that would be false yeah um and i will say that it's very possible that there were forces within iroquois society that didn't want to engage with this right that didn't want to be incorporated into the the global economy that didn't want to use firearms you know that thought that it was against their traditional values or like whatever that group did not win out yes right because firearms became a reality and you can look at this in another way too you could say that in the surrounding groups maybe there were groups that um, did not choose to take up firearms or did not choose to try to, um, you know, 
um, incorporate themselves even more fully into the global economy, and they lost out. Because what happened is that the Iroquois took those weapons and exterminated like half a dozen to a dozen of their neighboring groups. Right. Or pushed them completely out of their lands, in some cases literally completely exterminated them, um, in order to monopolize the beaver trade. And they then proceeded to hunt beavers in eastern North America so effectively, hunting and trapping, right, um, that the beaver populations crashed and have never recovered mm-hmm. from that, right? And this was done by indigenous people. Yeah. Like, pretty much as soon as they got access to firearms, they used them to conquer their neighbors um, in an extremely violent way, you know? And the point of this story is not to say that, you know, the Iroquois are bad people. Yeah. <laughs> the point of the story is to say that the Iroquois are people. Yes, exactly. And they have exactly the same types of motivations and pressures working on them as people everywhere else. Yeah. You know? And that, like, honestly, if it had not been them, it very much, it, it very, very likely would have been one of the neighboring groups that would have done something extremely similar. Right? So this leads very well into my next question, which is basically, why is it that seeing white people as the driving force of history, why is that framing inherently racist? Well, yeah, because because it acts as though whiteness is real, yeah. right? It acts as though there is something, first of all, it acts as though there is something in white people, so-called white people, that is like shining through this sort of like internal essence that is shining through them and manifesting itself in the material world in the form of cultures and civilizations that are capable of producing like such great things and such power and and such innovative like individuals and like all this kind of thing you know um so that's racist because that isn't true um it's just there was like a confluence of factors that happened to sort of like arise in that area of the world among people who lived in that area of the world you know um and then uh for another thing it it ignores purposefully or not all of the similar shit taking place in the entire world, you know? And it ignores that, like, the way that the world looked when Europeans showed up, even if you want to start with history at the period when Europeans show up, which I think is, like, a ridiculous thing to do, but even if you did want to do that, the world that they were encountering had already been shaped by a lot of very similar processes, you know? It's like, when they showed up in, like, you know when they finally got around to like colonizing the interior of Africa, for example, which was only around like 1900, um, the people that they encountered were all Bantu speaking farmers. Right. Who had been already been shaped by the, the internal like histories of that place that had already gone through the process that we're talking about, about base and superstructure and groups dominating other groups and different technologies changing the way that the culture is. And like in some cases, totally like eradicating groups or, definitely making groups migrate to different places and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so basically this idea of, you know, white people as a driving force of history, whether you want to paint that in positive terms, the way that like, you know, organized white racists do who mm-hmm. like see white people as like the driving force of civilization, or you want to p- paint it in negative terms, the way that it is in social justice culture where, you know, white people are the driving force of like domination and extractivism or whatever. Mm-hmm. Both of those still insist upon white people as the main characters of history yeah, um, and completely erase the complex histories that have existed everywhere else, Mm -hmm. the similar kinds of stories that have played out all over the world, Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, continue to do the thing that the mythology of race does, which acts as if white people 
is a special kind of person, a yep. different kind of person. Exactly. exactly. And that other people, you know, are also special, different kinds of people um, who have their own inherent traits. Um, and any look, like this is why I love the historical materialism, because any look at history completely fucking refutes that. Because any look at history shows that all people have acted in all sorts of different ways. And so this leads me into my next question, um, which is sort of more of like a thought than a question, but I wanted to just put it out there, right? I kind of feel that part of what is going on in social justice culture or the nexus is that kind of like people see it as a trade-off that like, okay, if people through the current situation of history have been very oppressed and dominated, Mm -hmm. that like the trade-off for them is that they get to be seen as the good guys. Right. Does this make sense? Yeah, I know what you mean. So I want to talk about like guilt, blame, and the search for bad guys. Mm -hmm. And the fact that like historical materialism leads us to the conclusion that all human groups are capable of sustainable ways of being and extractivist ways of being. All human groups are capable of equitable ways of relating and dominating ways of relating. Um, And that all human groups, if you take a long view of history, display some of the best and the worst like potentials of human beings, right? That none of those qualities belong inherently to any particular group. Um, And so... I wonder, like, what are your thoughts on why do people resist that? Like, why are people so attached emotionally to the mythology of groups being one specific way or another? I think the main reason is is because that is what they have been taught. And not just, like, in school, but by, like, by the superstructure, by this entire, like, mm. um, um, complex of ideological forms and institutions that teach you about the world and what the world looks like and how the world works. And... Um, people are influenced by that. Every person is influenced by that, you know? And so, you know, when people who, when people say like everyone is racist or whatever, like the, the point they do have, I think is that like everyone has been influenced by these ideas about race that are present in in the superstructure. Right. For sure. Um, but I also, I, I want people to understand too that like, um, and I think this is where my like anthropology kind of view comes in, um, that like there, there is no, there is no monolithic. Um, view of the world within any society. There's always people who disagree strongly with each other. Yeah. You know? Um, And as you said, like within every society, there's like the potential for thinking about the world in different ways. But there also is literally people thinking about the world in different ways. Yes. Right? Yes. And so it's like when we talk about sort of like white supremacy, for example, like very real thing that was like an overt policy of like many powerful states for like a long time, right? Right. Also, for that entire period... There have always been people in Europe, um, people who are considered white, you know, yeah. who, who opposed that ideology. Yes. Who thought either it was stupid or they opposed it for religious reasons yeah. or they opposed it on like moral grounds. They were yeah. just like, we should like leave these people alone, you know? Yeah. There's always been people who are opposed to it, yeah. right? Same thing with capitalism. Yeah. There's always been people who are against it or very critical of it, you yeah. know? At the beginning, it was aristocrats who were like, this is challenging our traditional power. Yeah. You know? And uh, so, Sorry. Do you want to finish? Well, yeah. And just like later on, there was like, you know, communists and anarchists and stuff. But also there has always been like um, various kinds of religious opposition to capitalism, like various sort of groups that came that had like a religious backing for their 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 criticisms of 
of capitalism, etc. So just the point is that like there is no like monolithic worldview within any group, um, and w what that suggests to us is that the superstructure is not um, it's not sort of like what you could call like mechanistically determined by the base, you know, mm. like the base influences it extremely strongly. Yeah. Um, but it, it's, it's not like a one-to-one -one kind of relationship. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think basically, I mean, at least historically, what has generally won out is like you were saying, it's the people with the horses, it's the people with the guns. So it's like, even if there is a lot of internal disagreement, sort of like ethically or ideologically or religiously or so on, what wins out has been the power, the mm -hmm. material power of the technology. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but that doesn't mean that it necessarily always has to be the case. And I think that there are examples in, in history of people doing, like coming together to create shifts in the superstructure, in the culture. Um, Absolutely. And which th can then produce shifts in the base. And like, I think... Um, one, like basically like one of the major points of like sort of Marxist inflected socialism yeah. is the idea that you can change the relations of production while keeping the forces of production more or less similar. Right. Right. And that the, the idea is that like capitalism has, right. has created this like um, enormous ability to create like wealth and um, prosperity. Right. Because we, we have like industrial production techniques, you know, we can produce like plenty for everyone you know we have farms that can produce enormous amounts of grain and stuff and so like now we have this critique of this based on sort of like uh, environmental reasons which like right. early marxists had like very little idea about yeah. right um but it's still the case i think that like most like not very many people want to go back to subsistence farming right. or like hunting and gathering or whatever you know um we would like to have a modern industrial society but we would like to have a modern industrial society that is that in which the relations of production, that is, who works for whom, doing what, um, are shifted away from a capitalist one and towards a more equitable one, which is what we call socialism. Right. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, and I guess, I guess, like, a lot of the, um, like, I just, I kind of want to get at this point that I feel there's a lot of defensiveness that people feel when we bring up this kind of thing mm -hmm. because of the fact that we have been so taught this mythology that, like, different types of people have different inherent qualities. Right. And so um, the answer to the problems that we're in are going to be about doing, like, looking at things in an identitarian way. So I want to get into the next question, um, which is, why does all of this matter? Like... Why does it matter that things are happening for historically material reasons? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. As opposed to because these are the essential traits of different identity groups. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why it matters is because it leads us to different solutions to the problems. Yes, exactly. Right? And so currently under the current social justice understanding of the world, which is highly essentialist and highly identitarian, if you really believe that whiteness is the cause of all of this, mm -hmm. then it makes sense that telling white people to be deferential, to be humble, to spend a lot of time reflecting on their inner prejudices, to you know read a lot of books about whiteness and race, to constantly be thinking about race in everything that they do, um, then you could see that like the internal work of white people could lead to some kind of changes in the external world because in this worldview, it's the internal, like 
qualities and inherent like values of white people that are causing all of this. Yeah. So if you get white people to change internally, then everything else will change. Right. But if you don't believe that, and you actually believe that there is nothing inherent in white people that is causing any of this, mm-hmm. then telling white people to basically like navel gaze and read a bunch of books about whiteness is going to do literally nothing to change capitalism yeah, or climate not. change. Of course not. You know, and it's also the reason why, and you wrote an article about this, which people can find on your website, jlisley.com. It's also why, you know, the framing of things like Lambach, the idea that if we simply like hand over um, issues like um, environmental collapse and climate change to people of the right identities, right. that this will naturally lead to more environmental and sustainable outcomes mm-hmm. is is not true if mm-hmm. you actually like take seriously and believe what we just said in this episode, right. because you just gave an example about like the Beaver Wars, for example. Um, yeah. And there's many other examples that we could get into about throughout history in which all different tech groups across the world have acted in incredibly unsustainable ways environmentally yep. um, based on their historical context and so on and so forth. And so if you really take seriously that like indigenous people have no inherent racial essence that forces them to be more environmental, because believing that is racist, mm-hmm. then you understand that simply handing over environmental problems to indigenous people is not going to solve climate change or anything else. Yes. Um, and so what do we do instead then? Well, what we do instead then is, I mean, sorry, this is like the boring answer, but it's like we, we work towards socialism. We work towards a system in which it is possible for um, this kind of thing to be democratically decided instead of decided by a sort of like the the, the dictates of the ruling class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we also, we come to an understanding that it's not um, the world that's created by ideas really, but it's like ideas that are created by the world in a certain sense, you know? And what that means is that if we want to create a world without racism, mm-hmm. we have to create a world without race. Mm-hmm. And like in order to create that, we need a completely different kind of, of of economic base yeah because in a very real way all of these ideas flow from the economic base yeah you know and so the task of socialism is to sort of like like make enough people aware of this that a fundamental change can happen yeah and when that change happens then we can start building a society that make that produces a different kind of person yeah i wonder if because I've never understood what the Marxists are talking about. But I wonder if in a certain way I am a little bit of a Marxist-Leninist. You are. I am? <laughs> you think so? I mean, you definitely have many Marxist-Leninist characteristics. Okay, well, perhaps it's true. But um, because I do think, you know, taking everything that we've talked about here today seriously, um, I, don't, I do not claim to have all the answers. You know, if anything, we are asking people to really think about this seriously and come to their own conclusions and to be having conversations about this stuff, right? But yeah. like... I do think that if we believe that the superstructure comes from the base and that the changes in technology are leading to people being empowered to dominate each other in the world, then we're in a really bad situation Mm -hmm. because capitalists are not, they have all the power, Mm -hmm. they fucking run the base and they are, you know, compelled through the current situation to continue to do what they do. And people, the rest of us do not have the power, you know, to challenge them because we do not control the base. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I guess the little Marxist loophole is 
maybe we do control the beast. Well, we kind of do. And that's the fucking thing. This is the Marxist thing. <laughs> because in a certain way, we do control the base in, in an, the fact that we are the workers. Yes, we do the labor. And so since we do the labor... We can change the way that the base is run, potentially. Potentially. That's interesting. Yes. Yeah, I do think that that is interesting and probably where our power lies. But I do think the reason I was calling myself a Marxist-Leninist, potentially, I don't claim that for sure, I'm not sure, but is that I do think that whatever they call the vanguard, I think I would probably find that quite annoying because I think it's a bit conceited, personally. But I think that the idea that like that there is work to do on the superstructure like simultaneously, yeah. like I think that the work at the level of the base is things like coordinated strikes, you know, yeah. and like labor organizing. But the work at the level of the superstructure, I think, is the work of like intellectuals and artists and so on who are trying to create changes in the way that people think. Yes. Right. Because if we if we actually refuse to believe the mythology that is um, that is kind of like manufacturing our consent if i could use that phrase um to all of this mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. if we are believing the 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 stories of the superstructure then we are less likely to question the base we are more likely to always just assume that the base makes sense and is natural and couldn't yeah. be any other way because yeah. there's so much superstructure there's so much culture there's so much stories telling us that this is obviously true and perhaps really good in some way yeah exactly right so if we are doing sort of like a two-tiered approach um, in which, on the one hand, we're organizing at the level of the base to interrupt the way the labor is done, to make demands by being like, we actually control the base because we create the base through our labor, so yep. fuck you, we're going on strike. Yep. And then on the other level, we're really working hard at the level of superstructure to change the way that people think about things so that people can see that capitalism is not inevitable, is not preferable, is actually really bad. And I think a big part of this in the current um, context is also to challenge the mythology of race. Um, and currently what's going on in social justice culture or the nexus is that they are not challenging the mythology of race. Right. They are changing the way that the mythology of race works. Right. Or like what 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 they're doing with it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. They're they're basically not being racist in the traditional sense by ascribing negative qualities to racialized groups. They're being racist in the social justice sense of ascribing positive qualities to racial groups yeah neither of which is in alignment with reality because people and cultures are a mixed bag yeah because if you believe that essentialist like identitarian stuff like the logical conclusion i think is that we should try to put lots of like trans people and people of color in boardrooms yeah and i mean that's you know, sort of like the, and that's neoliberal identitarianism yeah, and right? how's that going for us it, capitalism is having a great time it, capitalism can totally adapt to that absolutely capitalism yeah. is happy to adapt to that yeah you know? and so if we actually challenge the the mythology of race and we say actually it's not just that like we had the attributes that we're you know assigning to people wrong and we should flip them on their head mm -hmm. but instead we're like there are no different types of people yes and like like taking taking like let's say like a black woman or something mm -hmm. and and making sure that like lots of like corporate boardrooms have black women yeah. in them um and and imagining that that will then result in a different kind of world yeah is False, because it is not black women or white men who are creating the way the world looks. Or, like, it might be, like, individually, like, those people are in positions of power or something. Right. But, like, the thing that creates the world, the way the world works is the economic base that is overseen by those people. Yeah. Right? Um, and, yeah. So, the, the like, yeah, the question is not... Because you've said this before. Like, you know, a, a corporation might be willing to stack their board with, like, 
a bunch of like racialized women and maybe some trans people and gay people, Mm -hmm. but they're not going to stack their board with workers. Nope. And so like, that's the thing. Yes. Um, and conveniently for all of us, the working class is already intersectional. (laughs) So the working class is already made up of people of all sorts of different identities who have shared interests as workers and as people who are being fucked over by capitalism. And so, um, there's no reason why, um, when we are, you know, trying to lift up workers, that that is not also going to mean um, lifting up people of all sorts of different identities. It will necessarily mean. And if it doesn't, because I can hear the people who are like, well, wait a second, the brochalists are very white or whatever. Um, like any time historically, and I'm not going to pretend like it hasn't happened, any time historically or in the present where, um, where the uplifting of workers is sort of centering white workers or centering male workers or anything like that um, and is not representing the diversity of the working class, that is sneaking in the mythology of capitalism into workers organizing because race is a mythology of capitalism. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. And so if we actually are continuing to bring racist mythology into our workers organizing, we are not actually doing workers organizing because we are reproducing a mythology that was invented to keep workers divided Mm -hmm. because we cannot access the power of the working class. If we divide the working class on racial lines, the working class is inherently multiracial. Mm -hmm. And so anything that is dividing us on racial lines and not allowing us to find our solidarity and work together, whether that be the traditional bullshit racism or the newfangled racism, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really matter because Mm -hmm. it's still dividing the working class. So The last thing that I wanted to just briefly ask you, um, this is going to be the last question, is I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about Kim Stanley Robinson's In the Years of Rice and Salt. All right. Um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, The Years of Rice and Salt by Kim Stanley Robinson is, I think, probably my favorite book. Um, It is an amazing, amazing novel. It is a historical, um, an alternate history, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, And in it, the, um, The Black Plague, um, which happened, I think, around the year like 1300 or okay. so, um, kills everyone in Europe instead of most people in Europe. So, like in 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 reality, like it killed like an enormous chunk of the population of Europe. It was like a very like insane historical event that catalyzed a lot of changes in Europe. Um, and in the novel, U- Europeans are just like wiped out of history, right? Gone. And then, so what he does is he has like a, a sort of crew of characters who. Um, meet each other, like have like interactions and lives together and stuff. And then they die and they're reincarnated as like another crew of characters who are in like a different kind of relationship with each other. And every time they die, they meet up again in the Bardo, which is like the the Mm -hmm. Buddhist afterlife. Um, And they're sort of like, damn, we really fucked up that time. Or like, like, that was a nice life or like whatever, you know, and then they're like reborn again. And so by using that um, device, he's able to move forward in history, like hops forward in history. And so Europe- And also moves around the world. And moves around the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so Europe in this story is recolonized by people from North Africa. Yeah. Um, and it, beca- it becomes incorporated into sort of an enlarged Islamic world. Yeah. Um, and in this timeline, um, North America is discovered by, I think it's Japanese mm-hmm. sailors. Um, and this is a true fact. Um, in East Asia, they actually had a smallpox vaccine a mm-hmm. really, really long time yes. ago. Um, which they made by uh, taking the dried sores of smallpox sores, um, like scraping them off of people, grinding them into powder, and then like shooting them up people's noses with wow. like a long straw, which uses the same, you know, the same um, 
technique as like uh, doing like a line of coke, right? You have like uh, all these like blood vessels really yeah. close to the skin. So you can like, you can basically like snort a vaccine. Wow. And so this is like a very, very early form of vaccination. And they knew about this in China. They used it. Um, and Europeans didn't have okay. anything like this. So in this timeline, since the Americas are discovered by, or like contacted by um, East Asians instead of Europeans, there is a smallpox vaccine that exists right. already. So, so smallpox is far less devastating right. in, in the new world. Um, and so what you end up with, you know, like hundreds of years after this event that like wipes out Europe, the world is basically split between um, this like much enlarged uh, Islamic world and like a very like powerful China that has sort of like um, that controls like Siberia and like um, right. has like started to colonize like Australia and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and also parts of the new world. Right. And it's just like an amazing, amazing, amazing book because it really um, humanizes people from all of these different regions of the world um, and like shows that there's like a way in which these patterns in human history like will will play out anyway but just like in different ways yeah. um, if if certain like accidents of history sort of like played out differently yeah. you know um, and I honestly think that it's like it's it's very ironic because it's an alternate history. It's not real history, yeah. but it actually is one of the most historically accurate yeah. um, books that I've ever read. And, and it's like so interesting because this guy, like he just does like crazy amounts of research, yeah. you know, he's an incredible author, He's an incredible author. And one like really amazing thing about this book, I'm just going to say before I stop talking is um, that as I was reading it, I realized that because one of the stories in it is set in um in the Iroquois Confederacy, yeah. in the Haudenosaunee world. Um, and I realized that it is the only yeah. depiction in fiction that I've ever read that um, is set in a, like, fully functioning, like, n like non-subjugated um, indigenous society um, that has no white people in it. Yeah. Um, and that treats the indigenous people as, like, three-dimensional yes like individuals treats their society as like a living real society yeah um and it was like profound to realize that you yeah know? and i was like this is like a fucking sci-fi book yeah about like alternate history totally. and it's like the only time i've ever read anything like this you know yeah yeah and i think like what that book does i've also read it and i highly recommend it to people is that it literally through like a creative device takes white people out of the main character role yes. by getting rid of white people. There are no white people. There are no white people. And so it shows that history does not need white people. Right. Right? It shows <laughs> that all of the same kinds of things happen. They happen in different ways, but there's like horrifying war. Yeah. You know, there's like there's like extreme like subjugation, there's domination, there's like the development of science, there's like, you know, there's exploration, there's like the this like the people go over to like the Americas. Like all this stuff happens. Yeah. It still happens. It yeah. happens in different ways that are inflected through the cultures that are doing it. Yeah. Um, but it shows that like history doesn't fucking need Europeans. Yeah. And it never did. Exactly. You know? And exactly. so through that creative device, it really allows you, the reader, to take the world seriously and to take the people in the world seriously yeah. as like actors and main character. I mean, actors as in actors, meaning like agents of change, like yeah. drivers of history. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like taking them seriously as creators of history and creators of the world, which they are today, even though Europeans are also actors in the world. Mm -hmm. But by really just removing Europeans, it really forces the reader to see 
that the world is big and history is long yeah. and it's full of many people. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to start crying. I love this fucking book so much, man. Yeah. It's really good. And I also think for me as somebody who's not very like good at remembering like historical facts and details, you know, and who, as I admitted in the beginning, was like really ignorant about world history. It was the first thing that I had ever read that really turned all of that alive for me because it's through story as opposed to just a bunch of facts. Like I find yeah. that so overwhelming. And even though it is fiction, it is based in like truth. It is yeah. very well researched super accurate, yeah. and super accurate. And so it really like brought history and like like an internationalist view of the world alive for me and allowed me to picture things very viscerally in a way that I hadn't before given my education. So yeah. like I really recommend it to people. Yeah, yeah, totally. So but, I think that's it. Yeah. Do you have more to say about that? Oh, I love that fucking book, man. It's good. There's, like, this moment in that book, like, basically there's this, like, enormous sort of, like, parallel of World War II that happens between, like, the Islamic world and you the Chinese world. You always cry when you read this. I know. I literally cry, like, all the time. I'm, like, crying right now. Um, there's this, like, so there's this horrible war, and basically there's, like, a giant trench down the middle of Asia that's just, like, they're just throwing men into for, like... 50 years you know yeah. just like a meat grinder until they run out of men and then they're throwing women in and yeah. like you know and it creates these like horrible like this horrible like world and these like huge changes too like yeah. so in the islamic world for example basically they run out of men yeah so it's just like women running everything yeah um which cr creates like this huge sort of like social shift yeah blah 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 but anyways, there's this part of the, the book where, like, after this, like, horrifying war has ended and, like, the old, like, Eurasia, like, the old world is, like, totally decimated, um, the part of the world that is the most powerful now is the Iroquois. Mm, um, right, yeah. And, like, there's the... Oh, my God, I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> Jay always cries. I always cry. Um, there's this, like, in part of the Islamic world, which is actually in, like, what's what we think of as France there's this like coup and there's like these generals who want to like restart the war. And basically the Iroquois send like a bunch of warships into the Harbor and yeah. they're just like, no, yeah, you're like not starting this fucking war again, you know? Yeah. And so like the Iroquois have become the sort of like the superpower, like world police who yeah. are like, you're just like, we're just like not going to let these generals take over again. Yeah. Um, and they like steam into the Harbor and it's just like this crazy moment. Oh my God. Yeah. I really recommend it. And yeah, you should read. You should read the Years of Rice and Salt. Yeah, and also Kim Stanley Robinson in general. Yeah, he's um, amazing. But yeah, so thank you guys for listening to this long and you know very full of tangents episode. But what we mostly want to encourage people to do is to take history and the world seriously on its own terms. Yeah, and to actually like ignite your curiosity. And as always, like we are not offering you a new dogma in replacement of your previous dogma. We would like you to think. For yourself and to take the work of thinking seriously you know so you don't have to agree with everything we said here and there's tons of things that we only know a little bit about um and we always have more to learn but please go and learn about the world and history because it's fucking crazy man some shit's been going on some shit has been going on all right we'll see you guys later bye Dire que je suis un OG.